0: Open they're away in the golden slipper. There's a great start, and Mick masque on the extreme outside is about the first out. Just Juggler on the outside lunging, but Catlin opening just in front. Jaggler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening is lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit. The Juggler. This Iron podcast Porsche is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing, and Inglis. The New South Wales Central Coast. Attracts thousands of holiday makers over the Christmas/New Year period. A reminder to those who fancy a race meeting that the Gosford Race Club will host one of the best provincial meetings of the year on Tuesday, December the 29th, featuring the $160,000 Group 3 Bell of the Turf over 1600 metres for fillies and mares co-feature will be the $150,000 listed Gosford guineas of 1,200 metres for the three-year-olds. If you can't make it to this meeting, you get a second bite of the cherry. Two days later, New Year's Eve, the Gosford Race Club will race again. You get a wonderful view of the action from all vantage points at Gosford and facilities are second to none. It's a friendly little race place at Gosford, the perfect venue for a post-Christmas day out for the Central Coast Revelers, 29th and 31st of December at Gosford. Rodney Robb's legion of friends in the central west of New South Wales were taken aback earlier this year when the legendary horseman announced his intention to stand down after more than 40 years as a professional trainer. Based at Ningen on the edge of the New South Wales outback, Rodney had been a household name in the training ranks, winning hundreds of races, some of them in remote parts of New South Wales and Queensland, and collecting multiple Western trainers' premierships. The former drover has been around horses all his life. His reputation as a horseman, his earthy country disposition and a wicked sense of humour have made Rodney Robb a household name on the western line. At 66 years of age, Rodney thought it time to hand over the reins to his eldest son, Brett, known universally as Snow. It may have appeared that Rodney was cutting himself off from horses completely, but that is not the case. It just so happens that he decided to keep five horses as an interest, and as you're listening to this podcast, Rodney and his wife, Wendy, are based in Dubbo, looking after a team of 25 horses for trainer Clint London, who's on the sidelines for a short period of time. If there's a better known horseman in rural New South Wales than Rodney Robb, I haven't met him yet. And it's high time we got the man on the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the half-retired Rodney Robb, and it's only half, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is, for sure.
0: I'm sure you wouldn't have made a move like this, Rodney, unless you felt that Brett was ready for the challenge.
1: Yeah, he was certainly uh, ready for the challenge. He'd worked for me, you know, like full-time for the last two and a half years. He was on the railway for a stint for about seven years. And when he left school, he went to uh, Outback Queensland and worked for a great old mate of mine, Johnny Ferguson, on a place called Durham Downs. And he was up there for two years and... Uh, although he wasn't um, a great uh, scholar at school, um, that's one thing he did take after me. Um, <laughs> so, but you know, he was. I I thought at 32 year old, he, he's amply ready, and I was sort of ready to step back too. I'd sort of, mm. um, I'd had I'd hadn't had enough. Racing's been great to me, mm. but I felt that it wasn't any good of me uh, staying there for another three, four, five, two years or. Mm. And and giving it to Brett any older, I think he was ready, and uh, he's doing a good job now, and mm. uh, and uh, he's just got to get his hands on some probably a little bit better class horses later on, and, and that will happen.
0: He's better known as Snow than he is by his given name. Is there a reason for that? Yeah,
1: when he was a little, when he was first born, when he first came out of hospital there, he had uh, really really snowy white hair, but um, that was a, probably a little bit of a trait in uh, in uh, sort of the uh, on the on the Rob side but there's been a you know there's been half a dozen born with white hair and, and things like that and and um and his mother said, you know, what do we call him? I said, uh, I think we'll call him Snow. She said, we've got to get his real name. So she named him <laughs> she um Brett uh, called him um his mother called him Brett James and uh, he's mm-hmm. been known for Snow ever since he, the day before he came out of hospital.
0: Yeah, even in newspaper clippings they call him Snow.
1: Yeah, yeah, and he, he, he i noticed him a few times. He, he introduced himself into people, and a lot of people in the outback, he, you know, like working and um.
0: Yeah.
1: He was um, all his workmates sort of called him Snow, and right through it was always Snow. So um, mm. and I thought sort of stuck with him, and he, you know, I think he sort of uh, they relate to him as Snow, and yeah. I call him Snow. I, I hardly, I I'd probably wouldn't have called him Brett, for uh, I wouldn't have called him Brett. Um, ten
0: times in his life. Yeah, goodness know, me. So. Well, as I said, Rodney, you're in Dubbo for a while as Clint Lundholm approaches the end of a four-month sabbatical enforced by the stewards earlier this year, and he's a very lucky bloke to have Rodney Rob holding the fort while he's away.
1: Yeah, well, Clint, you know, like he just sort of, I, I, everybody, you know, everybody's got their own opinion about the – the case that uh the reason why he got suspended for four months um and everybody's got different opinions of course and i always always had a lot to do with the kid when he was growing up and uh he was uh, just a little bit in uh, right through the canal pony club and everything like that but he was always opposition of Ningan, but uh of course he never worried the Ningan riders yeah um but he was a very good kid right through at stake level and things like that and having a lot to do with the panic of movement myself. I'd sort of got a good relationship with him and and but even since he been, when he was a jockey he rode you know, he rode a fair you know, a few winners for me and then he become amateur and he still mm. complained uh, when his weight beat him and he's become a bit of an amateur and, and mm. he's still very successful. But when he went out in training, he hit the road running too, like he was um, the london, the London name, it's no you don't have to go very far back to see how good the London name is around the area and things like that, but mm. I only judge the kid on what the kid was and and he was sort of a couple of times I spoke to him when this sort of occurred, he was down and out, and yeah a lot of times in your life, you know like young people we've all or I had a lot of help when I was a young bloke and not in the same situation, but mm. I had a lot of. Different people come and, and advise me things. And and I just sort of said to this kid, and you could see that he was in, you know, like he's down now. And, and I said, Look, Brett's taken over here. Do you want me to come down and, and do it? I thought he'd only get a couple of months, actually. and um, mm. But the Dubbo's um, fortunate. Well, um, he got four months, and I've been able to come down here and put a little bit of common sense in the Dubbo,
0: mate. Worked out well. Well, you're as Ningan as the Bogan River but you were actually born in Forbes, 270 kilometres away, and you were only 14 months old in 1955 when your mum and dad, Clive and Beryl, and your only sibling at the time, Sister Sandra, made the pilgrimage to Ningan. Now, this is going to sound as though it's from another era, another time. Your father didn't own a car. And the four of you travel from Forbes to Ningen in a horse-drawn wagonette, with a horse tethered on either side of the sulky. It's an amazing story. How long did yeah, that, that trip th- take?
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, my dad, you know, all his along with all his brothers, he was uh, he was a big family. My dad, and um, he, I, he was the youngest uh, one of them. But they were all was drivers and stockmen and things like that, and. Um, there was a droving job come up at Ningen and he, um, them days, there was a lot of dealers with cattle and sheep that, you know, had a lot of those agents and they had big properties and things like that. They'd go and buy three and 4,000 sheep and they'd put them in the and give them to a drover for six weeks, two months, you know, mm. 10 months sometimes. And, um, yeah, dad sort of packed up uh, in a wagonette and him and mum and, and uh, like I said, um, we made the trip, and I don't, lads. I know that at that age, uh, of course, I don't remember it. Um, mm. But my sister does, and my mum. And when we got to Ningen, it took us, uh, it took him three days to drive uh, oh dear, the sulky uh, horse from yeah. Forbes to Ningen. But um, I still recall the horse that he drove in the sulky it was a horse called Rocket. Mm. And um, he had another red and white mare. we have seen photos of her later on in years, and she was Bonnie. And she, uh, mm. alongside, he, he had another little grey pony at the time. She was only about 12 months old. And later on in years, um, there was another um, two sisters come along and, a, and another little brother, and uh, we all learnt to ride on that same pony. Mm. So um, it's it's been a long, long time since then, but um, I – We'd sort of drove with Dad uh, all our lives up until, you know, i sort of left school at the age of 17, and um, they were the, I thought they were the hard times, and but I we never knew anything anything sort of mm. – we thought it was just law. We just thought we had to get out of bed and we had to go. And mm. um, my sister Sandra, she's two years older than me, and she still resides in Ningen now. and um, Yeah as tough as Teak and, um, you know, like probably my, you know, as far as mates go, I'm very, very close, mate, you
0: know. What so. beautiful memories you must have of droving with your dad among a flock of sheep or a herd of cattle. It was a direct link for you with Australia's great colonial past. You'd be away for weeks on end. Missed a bit of schooling.
1: Yeah, we missed. A, I missed a lot of schooling, so did my sister and there was a lot of schooling we missed and, uh, I can remember there once I never ever seen second class or fourth class at school. Mm. Um, but we'd sort of come back and, you know, we'd my mum had sort of, um, after, you know, sort of we'd be staying somewhere. And um, at one time there was about eight or ten families camped down on the Bogan River mm. um, on the sort of the Old Bawana Road down. I can remember there was about 18 of us there. At some stage, walking to school and different families was you know, woodcarters, mm. the easemans the Smith's and mm. my cousin and um, the Thornton's and, and they're all bush bush people.
0: Yeah. I'm going to rewind a few years to another cherished part of your upbringing. You were 10 years old when you joined the Ningan Pony Club and you remained one of its best participants right up to school, leaving age. Now, Rod, there was a certain grey pony who was not only your pony club champion, <clears throat> but to this day you place him amongst the most important horses in your lifetime. How did yeah. Target come into your life? Yeah,
1: he sort of come along. Um, he came along in 1965. There was a very, very big drought in 1965 and he was one of 28 horses in a paddock out at Linwood on the Tottenham Road. And we'd bought it out there, My myself and my younger sister, we bought it out there Called a place called Linwood and Edward Burke. And he had a, they had a family of six other children. So it was a big family. And, and it was a big drought. My mum and dad just drove up around Musselbrook. And, uh, and because there were no mobile phones them days, it was... No contact much until they got to a you know a phone on the corner and when you know when you drove and they were very um very remote areas and things like that so yeah my sister and I had sort of made doing that uh, great pony he was um oh actually he was a Galloway mm. well he was born and um, he lost his mum in the drought actually the, in that same drought there was 23 of those horses died in that paddock I can recall. Mm. The situation that it was, it was a terrible thing, to come home from school and go and check the horses. You know, like we had no, we had, there was no big bars I given out by the government then days, or by, and there was no big bars I even made those days. No. You know, yeah. so, and we had no way of feeding them. We tried our best. We were getting you know, a little bit of pollen, a bit of char, but it was to another avail. And he lost his mum pretty young. Yeah. And um, so there was only sort of three cults survived out of that 65 drought, and, he actually he was actually one of the horses and when we when the drought broke we found him there was two of my let out on the route actually and that was only two mm. two we found ever found and um so we we had another drove when we found him we had another drove and trip. so we took him on the driving trip so i broke him in mm. and he was about 18 20 months old by then and i broke him in when it was you know like sort of uh on and the half road. Old, yeah on the on driving yeah mm. There was no big round yards, them days of riding we broke and at, at the time we thought it was just um, part of life. We had ponies that break in year after year and week after week but he was one of them and he stayed with the family and he was a great horse and um, he, um, right through our pony club, my pony club days, I had him for years and um, he was one of the horses that he sort of never let us down or never let me down ever no. and... Um, and we just, he stayed as a sort of a family horse. Oh, well, you know, he was my horse. And, yeah. And, um, yeah, well, he was a uh, 37-year-old when we got him put down. So And
0: you uh, looked yeah. after him right through to his 37th birthday.
1: We we did indeed. And um, mm. I sort of now, I now call my property oh, our place. We've got 1,250 acres on the edge of town. And um, mm. I sort of named that property after that horse. And I always sort of think back and always say to my wife and, My kids, I don't know where I would have been if that horse wouldn't have come along
0: at that time. What do you call it, Rodney, Target Lodge?
1: Target Lodge,
0: yeah. Oh, good on you. Well, when it was time to get a fair dinkum job, the New South Wales Railways, as it was called back then, were looking for staff in the region and you were very keen to join them but you couldn't do it locally, you had to go somewhere else.
1: Yeah, like, I uh, there, there was two jobs going. There was one in Ningen and one in Cobar. The station master lighted us and there was a bloke called my good mate called David Telling you and we both went to Sydney and when we got back we we only had to do a medical. It wasn't a real brains test and um we uh we had to um had to pay a medical when we come back we uh, he said, Well there's a job here and a job in Cobar and I looked at him and I looked that back at my mate and he said I said, I'm not done at Cobar and mm. uh, and the station master said You'll have to um, toss a coin. So he tossed a he tossed a coin, and I lost the toss, so I was on the train the next morning to Cobar. Mm. You copped, um,
0: it, I, I, copped it. sweet.
1: I yeah, I copped the sweet, but I felt when when the train left and going out over out the Bogan River, I felt like jumping out about four times. <laughs> <you know? laughs> okay. um, so, but I knew I knew that we'd I'd work all my life, and we'd sort of had sort of. Very small uh, opportunity to, to earn any money uh, along the line. The only time I sort of earn a bit of money is I'd break in a pony or, or ride a pony for somebody and mm. I'd get a bit of sort of extra cash that way. But it's very, very small indeed, very small.
0: Mm. Your first job in Cobar was loading those big heavy wool bales onto the train at Cobar Station. And those bales came direct from the big sheep stations.
1: Yeah, they they come from you know big places out around you know like Cobar, like Anazone, Tulpa, Louth. Yeah, and they were big properties out there, and they you know the trucks of Alan Rogers and Alan Straderick, they'd come in with they'd come in with big loads of wool, and you know they'd fit 101 on a semi-trail of them days, and you'd get there in a 120 degrees heat, and you'd look up and say, oh, I, you know, I probably should have taken a bit more notice in the classroom. I wouldn't have been doing this. <laughs> But I, I don't regret one bit of it, really. It sort of, no. not that not that it taught me to work. I realised I realized I'd, when I went to Cab I knew how to work because that's one thing my mum and dad teach, did teach me how to work. And mm-hmm. um, it, it sort of taught me, and I was very lucky. I, I had good grounding as far as mateship goes. You know, even before then, I had a you know good relationship with a lot of pony club people and, mm-hmm. and a lot of a lot of, lot of different sort of people coming up through the ranks and 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 I put all that into perspective when I was when I went to Cobar. I'd sort of remember all those people. They used to sort of, you know, the, the Indian days with the Jeff Maddens, the Dickie Mantons and the Rosalie Fishers and, mm. you know, Peter Dutton's. Like, you know, like they just – they instilled me when I was a young bloke. To, but I always, at the back of my mind, I – Doesn't matter how many bars of wool I unloaded and what I did, how many toilets I cleaned or how many, you know, things I took off the crane, I only had one eye. I always wanted my life something to do with horses. Mm.
0: Well, (laughs) you certainly got your way. Before we leave the railways, you tell me nobody in history ever handled more parcels than you did during your time with New South Wales Railways. Incoming parcels and outgoing parcels.
1: Oh, yeah, there was lots of them. There was a lot of them that was over the counter and we had to unload big GVMs and, you know, there was no there was no pallet loaders there and there was pallet after pallet and we'd have to cart parcel after parcel by hand, you know. I oh, bloke like the late Barry Fox and Paul Buckman and mm-hmm. Jimmy Nichols and Carol Higgins and Trevor Higgins. Oh, I just you know, like Noel manual all those blokes, they made the job good because mm. I enjoyed working with them. They were good fellas, yeah. you know, they were great fellas. And it does all, you know, it wasn't, you know, these people say, oh, you know, I'll get a job on the show, I'll get a job on the railway, don't have to work. But, um, mm. yeah, I that's not true. I know that. That is not true.
0: There were a handful of horse trainers in Cobar and work riders were as scarce as hen's teeth. Now a couple of those trainers came to you one day with a business proposition they'd heard you could ride a bit and they asked you to ride their horses' work before you had to start at the railway station how was the pay
1: yeah the pay is good uh, the pay is real good but there wasn't much of it um, <laughs> but i like but when you you know when you get your first paycheck off the railway and you you know and you're working sort of 12 days a fortnight, uh, 12 days a fortnight, mm. and you look at your pay slip and she's $172 for the fortnight, mm. you, you think, oh, that's probably not bad that you work at hourly rate, but yeah, the late um, Brucey Coates e. and um, Billy Dixon and Bruce Hamilton and uh, those three gentlemen not with us anymore, but mm. yeah, Billy Dixon and Brucey Coates e. come up and I was unloading wool one day and they said, oh, you're Rodney Roller? I said, yeah, I am. Um, they tell me you've done a bit of track riding in Ning and I said oh yeah I said I did I did I used to ride here when I before school when I was home and mm. so they um, said oh we're going to get some horse in work can you ride a bit of track work for us I said oh yeah but I, I started here at 7.30 so I left the meters out there at 5 o'clock so that's okay so they had two horses each and they used to pay me $5 per horse per week. And, you know, like I said, geez, geez, this is going all right. They used to – and they were good blokes and very, very great blokes to ride for. Mm. And, you uh, know, their horses used to go good too. And, and um, yeah, at $5, um, you know, when you're getting $10 cash every Saturday morning after you rode it for six mornings, you know, oh, that's not too bad. That's not too bad. But <laughs> I, don't many, I don't know whether many – I don't know whether many you get out of bed now for it.
0: Yeah, I don't think George Moore would have had he lived at Cobar.
1: (laughs) No, 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 I don't think so, no, no, for sure. Now,
0: Rodney, fate decreed that you were to meet a certain young lady in Cobar who had been born and reared in the town and who was destined to become your life's partner. How did you meet Wendy?
1: Yeah, well, it's a funny case and, um, yeah, I was up at a friend's place, uh, and the late uh, Denise Maloney and Pat Maloney. Still, Pat's going good, but uh, Denise, I was up at her place uh, having dinner one night. I'd met Denise through Pony Club, and and um, yeah, and they had a lady called moira Carson there, and, and staying with them. And and, uh, and when you my um, the the girl I met, she was a pretty good mate of moira so they come to the house and. Um, yeah, from that day on, they you know, her dad had a property out there, and I'd met her dad before that because he he'd come and a lot of them property owners when they used to um do their wool wool um sort of uh, shear the sheep they used to come and borrow a lot of railway tarps off us to cover their wool.
0: Mm.
1: You know? So I I was fortunate enough to sort of meet Wendy's dad you know, a little bit more before um. Uh, Wendy, uh, I met Wendy, so I sort of knew mm. who she was, but I had never met her. So that was the start of it, and yeah, and uh, that's a long time ago. Mm. My, well, how long? Yeah, um, 1974, no, 1973 I met
0: her, yeah. 47 yeah. years,
1: Rodney? Yeah, yeah, and then 73, yeah, 73, yeah, she, um, yeah, so she, and she'd tell you the exact date.
0: Yeah, and worth more than six Group 1 winners.
1: yeah yeah you could probably say that yeah yeah for sure like it hasn't been a hasn't been a one man band since then it's been a it's been a family sort of thing and um i always said that i was always going back to you know i did over after i started riding a bit of work and everything like that and i had another good show jumping horse uh, gray horse i gave 70 dollars for him at out of the dubbo sales and he was a damn good horse too and so but I took him to uh Warren Show. I took a I asked uh HMS could I have a sicky and um he said, Yeah, go for your life. So I took him to Warren Show and mm. and yeah, he was uh he was a good show, jumping awesome, uh there was a couple of photos coming out in the Liberal and the superintendent, Tom Edgner, at the time, he rang me on the Monday morning. He said, you must have been really crook on Sadie by the look of that horse jumping on Sadie." you know. <laughs> so, so,
0: Backfire. Uh, so,
1: so I it's just too far out there to have a good horse like him. So I actually um, I sold him to a good mate of mine, Edgar Adams. Mm. He was a kind guy. And he did say to me that day, and there's a lot of people wanted to buy the horse, and Edgar said, tell him to me, Rodney, and when I retire – when John's finished with me, my son, mm. when I uh, haven't got any more use for him, mm. he said, I'll give him back to you. Ah. And I said, well, that'll, that'll be a great deal. So I sold him at the time for $2,500, and okay. that was a lot of money them days, but he mm. he, he was a good horse. But I, yeah. I returned on uh, the cobar and I bought a horse float for $1,000 and I bought a raised horse for 500 you know.
0: Was that Swell, Swell that, King?
1: That was Swell King, yes. That yeah. was
0: Swell King. Well, he's the horse that launched your career.
1: Yeah, he was a good horse, a brown horse, and yeah, he, he, and you could easily say that he was um he was a you know, he was sort of a good all around old horse, and I i I'd sort of I like I said I had a lot to do with horses, but I never had a lot to do with race horses. But I did learn a little bit off a of bloke when we drove, and that I worked a lot of horses for him uh, at Warren when we drove around Warren and place like that, and he used to give Dad a horse for a week to. To work on while well, we're we'll and, and not that dad worked in very hard, it was always me to get on him. And uh, mm. he belonged to Gary Cooper. So, Gary Cooper always told me a little bit, and not, so I just put that all together, and it's all worked out since.
0: Mm. Well, your second horse cost you even less. You got Pipes of Erin for $400, and you bought him from Trevor Doolman, the man who would uh, later win a claim. As the trainer of a very good horse called Tulmax, or better known as the Molong Mud Eater. But Pipes yep. of Erin was no Tulmax, Rodney, but he did a good job for you.
1: Yeah, he did a good job. And Trevor, it's just a it's funny thing how it ever worked out. And, and sometimes it's, everything works out for the good of it because. I was talking to Trevor Dillman on the, he was on the railway too at Molong and Trevor Dillman rang, I was in the office of one day, one of the rare times I was at the office and the phone rang and I answered and it's Trevor Dillman, mm. he was looking for something that it might have stayed in a truck from Molong to Cobar, it was in a, been a truck, he traced it back and, mm. and, and they used to, and I said, yeah, that is in the truck. It's as a role of uh, studio post. I can remember it. And got mm. talking. He said, how are you going in Cobo, Rodney? I said, yeah. He said, oh, you got a Andy Old horse called Swell King. And I said, yeah, I'm having a bit of fun with him, Trevor, and everything got that. And mm. he said, I've got a horse here. He said, he's not good enough for Downey anymore, but gee, he'd be a good horse for you. He said, he's going into the horse sale uh, on Wednesday. Mm. I said, really? So I got a day off, and I went out and bought him for $400. And oh, God, he was a damn good horse, I think. For memory, I might have taken him to uh, Brogan Hill six times and he won five times and uh, he loved the dirt tracks and, you know, he won at, he won at Louth and won at Burke, Brewerina. Yeah, no, he was a good horse. Um, he was a good bush horse, a very yeah. good bush horse.
0: Well, life hasn't been a complete bowl of cherries, Rodney. You and Wendy suffered a dreadful setback in 1983 when your Ningen home burnt down in a blaze triggered by an electrical fault. And this was when you first realised what great hearts racing people have.
1: Yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's sort of a, when you're sort of, um, sort of getting on your feet and we'd only been sort of married for uh, three years and my little daughter Jodie, you know, the oldest girl, she was only about 18 months old mm. and, um, yeah, yeah, um, it does. We only had a little place there, 23 acres, just across the road from the showground, and it was, it was, it does. something that you look around and you feel, uh, whatever done, you know, what's, what, why is this? But mm. you talk about good people, you know, blokes like Mac Smith and Johnny O'Neill and those blokes, you know, are trained for Bill Davis from Burke. There probably a never a better person that ever drove a car than Bill Davidson Burke you know along mm. with Brian, Brian O'Malley and those people in my house burnt down you know like the very next day there was three of those men on different occasions on different day, on the different times of day came and um, gave myself or Wendy an open check handed uh, me mm. a check you know Max Smith handed me a check he said I'll only sign it you fill it out whatever you gotta buy you buy it Mm. um those sort of things sort of go back to memories that um i just don't know whether that would ever happen again today i just don't i you know i don't think it would happen today i really mm. don't um but it happened to us that time on three different occasions um ray barra you know like a long time bloke that i trained for like he came mm. in and said you know like how much money do you want i said i don't want any ray i'll be right we'll get through this, we'll get a cabin, we'll live in it and mm. the house was insured for not a lot of money but we will be able to afford to buy another one, mm. you know. So, to build another one, which we did. It was about. It was about. And But I think those sort of situations only sort of really do make you stronger, doesn't it, you know, mm-hmm. when, when you sort of got to work and I know that at the time I had 10 racers in work, Um, I used to have... Um, I'd you know get up and I'd ride my own. I'd shoe them. I'd do everything myself. Yeah. Um. Then I'd still go out and there was a lot of, uh, a lot of people that wanted mustering and and things done at that time. And I'd sort of, be up and going by eight o'clock. And I'd be going out mustering, sheep uh, or cattle for a bloke or marking some lambs and, mm. and that sort of come in. You know that was worth a hundred dollars a day those days. And um, but now they wouldn't. They still wouldn't get out of bed for that.
0: No, uh, you may do. Now, Rodney, 1990 was a black year in Ningen's history when a wall of water 14 kilometres wide inundated the town. Two and a half thousand people had to be evacuated. You had 20 horses in the stables at the time. What did you do with them?
1: Well, um, I went over... Uh, where we lived, there, where you know, the same place where our house burnt down, we um, it was in a bit of a low spot, and I knew. Uh, and when the wall broke, it broke behind us, and uh, at the you know back of our house, oh, mm. would have been about 200, 300 three hundred metres away from the back. I knew, and we battled and battled for four days to try and save it. Mm. It just we we'll, was we'll, the last two days we're fighting a losing battle and people knew that, but there was, there was people there that just wouldn't give in, you know, blokes like Tony Lewis, Colwright, You know, Ernie Brown, like they just kept work, work, work. I came back and I, I came back about midnight the night before it broke. And I said to my wife and, and snow was only a little folly. He was only about two. And mm. yeah, well, he in 1990 would have been about two. And, and, um, um, I said "When you better, whatever you need to get out of this house you better pack it up I went and got my truck put it up in front of the house and my sister mm-hmm. my late sister come down and uh, helped uh, pack up and I said you know like and I said if this water breaks we're the first to go So you get out of here you get over the mum and dad's and that's a bit of higher part of the town but it's as hard like it hard. when it did break I got those those horses with a bloke called Robin Black helped me and um we let them out, and we tied them at the showground there. We've got a big arena there, and the showground's a bit high there. It's a little, you know, like it's on a bit of high ridge, and I said, well, that's mm. probably the best place for me to go. So we took them out there, and we put oats and corn and loosened up in the truck. We took them there, and we tied them around the truck, and we had feed bins, and yeah, it just you – know, I don't think I've ever done it tougher for, for a day and a night in my old life. I was there no. – and. You know, like I'm by myself, and there was another boat, bought a in there. We jacked it up, and we
0: put yeah, and pretty on scary it. too.
1: It was because when you're looking at it, and the and I went and tried to save four ponies in another little paddock there. I could I could hear him in a bit of trouble there about eleven o'clock, and mm. I got on a horse called Cabron, and uh, he was a good horse, Cabron. He was a lovely horse to ride. I got on him bareback. I went over in this paddock and I opened the gate, and I put a loot around one of these ponies' necks, and mm there were only thirteen two hand ponies, and I knew they were in the trouble. So I got I got one to the gate, and the other three was following, and and the other one, you know, got to the gate and just wouldn't, you know, just wouldn't come through and pull back. And yeah, nearly pulled me off the horse and got away. I only had a rope round the neck, but those those four ponies didn't make the trip. They just uh, oh, I couldn't yeah. catch them in then. And um, I went back to the truck and I tied the horse up and got out. And when uh, when you get off the horse and the, and the waters the waters up you know, up over your belly, it's, mm. it's three foot high. And there was a 44-gallon drum there and was sitting in the back of a truck and, and you know, it was just, it just pretty – it was scary and we had all these horses. It just kept running from in mind, what am I going to do if the, if it's still – if what am I going to do, you know? like, mm. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, you could see the water. It the balancing on a 44-gallon drum and the water would just flap up, the running water, then all of a sudden it stopped running. Mm. Then, then it sort of then for about twenty minutes it didn't run into the forty-four gallon drum, and I said to John Egan's, I said, you know what, John, mm. I think this, I think it's taken its peak. I think it's peaked, mm. and that was, I can still remember it, it was um five past two in the morning
0: when it started to recede.
1: It, well, it didn't recede. It didn't go any higher.
0: No, no. Yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. It
1: didn't, and uh, it stayed like that for about two and a half days actually, and mm. our horses. Our horses got through it okay. They they was in water, but they were you know they were fed pretty good and mm. yeah and you know everybody evacuated out of town and I sort of we stayed at the mm. we stayed at the showground with the horses and uh, and I didn't know I had to, I had to sort of try and contact you know Wendy and my you know the three mm. children and and yeah, Inspector Ham said come out on a boat and. Mm. And I said, What's going on? What's, what's happening? So, evacuated. he went out, I said, have You have to see my wife and three kids. He said, Yeah, they're on the helicopter and they're going to Dubbo. Mm. Mm. So, um, yeah, and another you know, friend of um, Bill Davis from Burke, he'd heard about that. So, he uh, left Burke and went right around, right around by parks. He went right up, you know, went right around and went all the way to. Dubai and pick my yeah uh, pick my wife and three kids up and 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 come back around and and drop mm. them back at this is four days later drop them back at their parent, uh, when his parents when Wendy's parents place at uh, Cobar. Mm.
0: Rod, right, I'm just looking at the clock and we're starting to eat into our time, so I'm going to put the pace on a little bit because mm. there's a bit more ground I want to cover with you. But we'll take a break firstly on the podcast. We'll clear this commitment and back with Rodney Rob very quickly. The catalogue is out for the 2021 English Classic Yearling Sale. In total, 803 yearlings have been catalogued, 620 in the main book, 183 in the highway session. The sale will run from February the 7th to February the 9th at Riverside and will be preceded by the running of the $2 million English Millennium at Randwick on the Saturday. 108 stallions will be represented at the classic sale, including 22 first season sires. 87% of the yearlings are Bob's eligible, while there are yearlings catalogued eligible for Vobus. QTIS, West Speed, and also the South Australian Breeders and Owners Incentive Scheme. Since 2018, English Auctions have produced 53 Group One winners. In the last four years, the Classic Sale has produced the winners of a Melbourne Cup, a Golden Slipper, an Everest, a Blue Diamond, a Randwick Guineas, and a Victoria Derby. Grab your copy of a catalogue Bursting with quality, the English Classic Sale 2021. My guest is Rodney Robb. You've never had the luxury of high-priced yearlings or classically bred horses, but you've maintained a tremendous strike rate with horses which could never be described as blue bloods. I'll just run through a few quickly. Normar, a tough bush mare with whom you won 10 races in the 1980s all in the bush from Orange to Bourke. She didn't know how to run a bad race. Dalavon, 65 starts, 20 wins, 21 placings. He won a race at Gosford, he won twice at Canterbury. Next thing he turns up at Lightning Ridge and wins a race. Goodness knows where else. A terrific old horse, Dal Red Yacht was a prolific winner for you, Rod, in the 1990s. He won 24 races, 17 seconds, 12 thirds, all on bush tracks, but it doesn't matter where they're racing, they've still got to win. Now to more recent times, and you love an old horse called Austin, who started his life with Chris Waller, for whom he won a maiden at Kembler. You've gone on to win another 10 races with him, and he's recorded many, many placings, and you've carted him everywhere. He won the Louth Cup last year, the Badoori Cup the year before that. He's been to Birdsville. He's been everywhere. And you tell me he is the toughest horse you've ever trained.
1: Oh, for sure. Austin was – there's no doubt Austin was the toughest horse I've ever, I've ever trained in my life. He, he was he, – you know, like he won the Badoori Cup and, you know, it was like six days later – we travelled 2,700 kilometres home, and started him at Dubbo. The following Saturday, and he'd actually uh, won the big picnic championship. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's no doubt. There was, you know, people say to me, He's a "Good tough horse." That horse, I said, he, was, he, you know, like he wouldn't have held a candle to Austin. Like he, he, Austin is a, he was a competitor. He, he, he was everything you wanted in horse, Austin. Like mm. he still running my paddock at home, and. I only looked at him yesterday, and I said, "I wonder, will you be back?"
0: Mm. So you intend to put him back into work?
1: I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to give him another. I'm going to give him another go. He's, mm. he's got a bit of age on him, but he's, he, he's old and sound. And yeah, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I want to give him another go. Yeah, mm.
0: he'll tell you if he's ready for it. Of course, he
1: will. I'll know in the first three months what's, what's going on there. You,
0: know? you love these outback race meetings. You like nothing more than loading the truck, packing the swag and heading off for weeks on end. And one of your jockeys, Wendy Peel, was telling me recently she accompanied you on a trip to the Queensland out back last year uh, when you raced at Birdsville, Batuta and Baduri. You covered exes, and Wendy said it was a unique experience.
1: Yeah, she's a good, um, she's a good tough little girl and a good girl to take away with you and things like that. She she put her hand up to, to work and everything, uh, Wendy, and... Uh, She was with me for seven months, Wendy, and, um, yeah, no, very, very good kid and deserves everything that comes her way. Very hard worker. Uh, I've only ever sort of employed one girl that was equal to the task in work ethics and a great kid, and that was Anna Rozak. Um, Mm. She later married uh, Cody Nester.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Wendy Peel is now with the Paul Butterworth stable in Queensland and she's almost ready to return to the saddle after 3 months on the sidelines with a broken hip and she was telling me recently uh, rodney she enjoyed her 8 month stint with your stable at ningan even though it was through one of the worst droughts in history she said there wasn't a blade of grass to be seen
1: no she's um she's 100% about that and it was it, it was a struggle and she was um, one of the ones that, uh, in the biggest drought we've ever seen, Ningan's ever seen. We uh, we did. Uh, she was she put up in after we'd done all the track work and all that. We'd go down and feed horses and boil barley and um, feed what cattle we had left, uh, a bit of hay and things like that. So, mm. yeah, no, she she seen it and everybody's seen it and we've probably seen. We've probably, you know, you probably, if you have a look at it, we've probably seen two things happen all within 12 months: The worst drought on history, and uh, and now it's uh, it's probably the the uh, the best uh, wheat crop the farmers have ever seen, you know, mm. in in a lot of the years.
0: Yeah. You know. A few other reliable workhorses who've come through the system. Drought Breaker was a great money spinner in the 1990s. 15 wins, 12 seconds, five thirds. He won a Forbes Cup. And he won two in town, one at Warwick Farm and one at Canterbury. And I've got a feeling Malcolm Johnston's brother Michael rode him in those races.
1: Yeah, Michael. Um, yeah, Malcolm rode him in the Forbes Cup, um, mm. and Michael rode him in the other two. And because he, Michael had a claim at that t- at that stage, and he was only a little horse, and uh, mm. and we act- we went on um, Malcolm's advice to do that. Um, I wanted Malcolm, and Malcolm said, "Look, Michael's." Um, Michael's uh, riding good, and he, he sort of—I think he claimed a couple of kilos—and he'll do the job. And uh, uh, yeah, he was right. He was right uh, at that stage. Uh, Malcolm, he, you know, he did us, but we end up—you know—we've been good mates probably you know, three parts of our life,
0: actually. Mm-hmm. You know. Thermoser in more recent times, has been a beauty for you. Seven wins, half a dozen placings. You know, you've got the knack of being able to keep these old geldings up for long periods and keep him happy. Here's another one. Let's a star. Way back in the 1980s, he had 83 starts, 25 wins, and 29 placings, and I think he won one at Canterbury.
1: Yeah, he did. He won He won a race at Canterbury one day. He led all the way. That's the same day, one day, Drought Broker won. Yeah, we took the two of them down there, and they both won. Mm. Um, yeah, um, let's a star. You know, like, he was a... Very good horse. Very, the most underrated horse I think I've trained was let's a star. He was, a, you know, he won from 800 to 2,000 metres. Um, yeah, you don't get many horses to do that these days. You don't get any to do that these days. They just don't stand up that long, do they? And mm. I think the racing system these days don't allow them to have 80 starts because uh Handicapping things now, than the different class of race and things like that. There's no places for those good old horses. Them good old horses could go around every fortnight, but these days you uh, you look at programs these days and they've just got it. To, um, they've got it the way that them that the people don't see them good horses um, for that for that longer period these days.
0: Mm. You won a nice little race at Warren last year, the Cotton Cup. With a mare called Bells and Bows, ridden on the day the perfect race by Wendy Peel.
1: Yeah, and we, um, yeah, we had a lot of trouble with Bells and Bows when we first got her. She wouldn't, she wouldn't leave the barriers, and she was just a, I don't know. We, we tried a bit of everything, all the, all the you fungal things there that they get these uh, new butte things there. And I said to Brett one day, Snow, I just said to Brett, look, the only way we're going to fix this mare, we've got to take all this gear over. Mm take all the gear over she'd just got to race in open bridle mm. and let her anyhow he, uh, we did that and he said oh well nothing else is working dad will give it a go mm. so we we tried that and worked and um yeah that day uh wendy you know like it, it was one of the one of the very uh, nice rides that day and she she summed up pretty well the mare had no weight on and she jumped well and everything like that so Mm. And when he sort of rated a pretty good, so it was a good win, you know. I've had a lot of horses for Wayne Brown and, and Bells and Bows was owned by Wayne.
0: Mm. A very good apprentice called Clayton Gallagher spent most of his apprenticeship with you at Ningan. He's out of his time now, but I believe he chooses to stay on with Brett and he's going to get plenty of rides on the Western Line. I think he turned up at Gunnedah yesterday.
1: Yeah, yeah, no. Clayton coming me on that advice on Neville McCarthy. was one of the Australia's best, um, you know, rodeo um, on the rodeo circuit. But Clayton turned up, and yeah, he's been. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, he's. Uh, it hasn't been an easy road with me with Clayton. He, he's a he he's a great kid and everything like that, and and he's a very very strong rider, very strong indeed, and everything like that. He's. He done his apprenticeship, he travelled the birds with me, he's come to Cutterna and Wyndham, he's been everywhere with me. And yeah, he's still living in Ningen. And um, yeah, no, I, I did say to him, What are you gonna do when you finish your apprenticeship? He said, Why? And I said, Well, what are you gonna do? He said, I'm staying here. I said, Oh, yeah,
0: so, <laughs> Yeah, good. Uh, I know you'd like to acknowledge Norm Ward, who did the bulk of your riding for 20 years or more. A very, very good country jockey. And the most reliable bloke in the world when it came to track work. He rarely missed a morning.
1: Yeah, Normie Ward. He was from the rural old school. He, he was I there was a lot of people rode him as good as they've seen in the bush. And um and and the people who did that, they weren't one eyed either. They seen what I seen. Normie rode competitive for over twenty years. He I don't know how many winners Normie would have rode, but Mm. normie was a great believer if the horse didn't get worked, he, he was no good race day and and that's a motto that young people these days have got to come in if they if they got to get the best out and they got to get out of bed and they got to go and work them
0: mm.
1: and normie ward was like that he rode for easily 20 years for me i just don't know how many winners he rode for me but um i'd like to have hundred dollars for each one he did ride for me now mm-hmm. uh, like banking a bit of money but he was a very, very good rider, Normy. A good bush rider and a, you know, a very good bloke to work with. And and he was a good judge too. If he come back and said it needs another run or it needs another gallop, and he was 95% chance uh, he was right. Mm. Uh, another kid that I had come through the ranks, he was underrated all his life. Was Chris Wern. Mm. Chris Wern was a very good strong rider, a very good rider, and um, he outrode his claim as an apprentice with us and everything like that. But and he was born to be a jockey, Chris, because his dad, his dad Paul, was a like Dad Paul was a good rider himself and a mm. very brainy man. Has been, a, he was a shy general manager there once, so he not only was a good um, fellow and a good rider, he had uh, plenty of um, brains behind him. But Chris, and not many people mention Chris these days, but he was one of he was right up there with the best of them.
0: You've already mentioned your friendship with Malcolm Johnston who rode most of the horses you brought to Sydney and he made himself available whenever you had runners at a country cup meeting. He won the Forbes Cup for you, as we've just mentioned. At his best, Rodney, Sydney Racing saw few better jockeys than Miracle Mal.
1: Well, I I don't... I Well, I certainly never put... I never ever put anyone better on, you know, like I was... Um, at the time when Malcolm rode a couple of those horses for me in town and, and the Forbes Cup, I was a great mate for Rodney Quinn, and Rodney Quinn came through the Ningham Pony Club level. Mm. So I was all, always under a little bit of pressure because I'd had a lot to do with Rodney Quinn, but later on in the years, I had a lot to do with Malcolm and sort of be, uh, Malcolm come to Gossett one day and. I uh, rode a horse called Cabron for me in you know, a big uh, fifteen thousand dollar intermediate down there. Malcolm only come out there for the one ride and, and uh, sort of, and uh, not it wasn't Cabron with the Del Ava on it actually mm. it was, and and one day at Gossett. and and um that it was just you know like the the mateship sort of was begin before that, but it just got heavy and you wouldn't believe it just you know like. Uh, Uh, Rodney Quinn was there that day, and he was the first bloke to congratulate him. But that that, that was Rodney Quinn all over.
0: Oh, absolutely! Yeah, absolutely! Uh, Very busy now in his role as a mentor with racing New South Wales, and he's uh, he often attends meetings. Kembla Grange and Hawkesbury seem to be his main uh, Main, his main assignments. Yep. Now, Rodney, your last two seasons as a trainer operating out of Ningen were very successful. (sighs) 2018-19, 2018-19, 55 winners. You ran second to Brett Kavanagh on the New South Wales Country Trainers Premiership and 2019-2020, 58 winners and you were second to Matt Dunn on the Country Trainers Ladder. You went out in a blaze of glory. Yeah, they were,
1: they were, they were good years and um, they were, you know the last two years, had been good so a good year to me and it's fitting that we'd sort of finish off those sort of things and and a, like out our way we're not we've got to travel a long way to for race meetings and like that, that. but um, the stable is very pleased and we are probably those two years I do owe a, a, a lot of that uh, accreditation to um, snow he was a main man behind the scene then riding track work and mm-hmm. things like that and um, and helping with the horses and those two years, the last two years, have been good years and, and it, it couldn't come in a better time for him to take over. Um, like, to, be, to get close to two people like Matthew Dunn and Brett Kavanagh um, is, you know, like I, I was all, I'd never ever dreamt that I could get uh, you know, that close to them in a New South Wales um, country champ, anything like that. But, um, yeah, um, but I'd sort of won numerous a lot of other trophies out west and I'd I just always believe that I, I was better off out the bush and things like that. I got more, mm. I got more out of the bush because that's where I'm. I've always been. Um, that's where I rated the people that, that was behind the scene that helped me through a lot of hard times through that when I was a kid and things like that. It, it just mm. wasn't easy, so I just always wanted to be around them type of people.
0: Mm. Well, this has been a podcast with a difference. It's been a lot more than an interview with a horse trainer. It's been a look at country racing. It's been a look at country life. And it's been a look at the Australian bush. And it's been an absolute delight, Rodney Robb, to have you on the podcast. Thanks for your time. Thank you very much. Thank you. And this podcast was produced by Supernova Sound.